Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 56 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. I was thinking about what to talk about this week, and I went back to a presentation, a presentation that I've given before. It's a presentation that I've given to people who wanted to learn more about investing, and specifically, people who wanted to improve their investing psychology. Investing, sure, there's some math involved, but a huge part of investing is mindset, is psychology, because investing can be stressful. We see sometimes our accounts going down, and we worry. Or even on the flip side of things, sometimes we see our accounts going up and we get overconfident. And it's important to have the right psychological mindset, that right baseline to be a good investor because usually the the bad times aren't nearly as bad as they feel. In fact, the bad times usually present this really good opportunity to invest more. And the good times are when we ought to be maybe a little bit cautious, a little bit worried, but that's not how our brains work. Usually the good times They make us want to invest even more and more and more. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to go through this this presentation, seven really cool investing facts, really about the stock market and and stock market adjacent ideas. It might help to have a little bit of some of the visual aids, right? This is a PowerPoint presentation that I'm going to talk about, but I'm going to talk through a lot of the visual aids and keep the numbers fairly straightforward in a way that I think everyone's going to be able to understand. So... Let's dive in and talk through seven fantastic facts to improve investor psychology. First, let's talk compounding and let's use some really interesting examples to illustrate how compound interest works. So do you know how the inventor of chess the game of chess. How was the inventor of chess rewarded? This story about chess and rice, it might help you learn a little bit more about compound interest because it's an old Asian proverb. Some say it's Indian, others say it's Chinese, that the emperor was was really happy with this new tactical board game brought before him. Chess was simple to learn, but impossible to solve. And, And sure, maybe killing the king made the emperor a little bit nervous, but otherwise he thought it was a great game. So he offered the inventor of chess a reward of the inventor's choosing. So the inventor, he thought about it a little bit, and he responded, I'm but a simple game maker. Chess and rice are all that I require to get me through the day. So would you give me one grain of rice for this first square on the chessboard, and then double that for the second square, two grains, and then double it again for the third square, four grains, and then continue on for the rest of the board, doubling for each square, Could that be my reward? That rice is the only reward that I would need. So the emperor, he felt himself a pretty good judge and a a decent mathematician and a single meal, he thought, might have maybe a, a, a thousand or a few thousand grains of rice in it. So even if the investor's request summed up to, say, like a million grains of rice, that's only a few years worth of meals. And the empire could easily absorb that loss and and afford to give that requested reward. So the emperor agreed, and in doing so, he sealed his fate. Okay, let's talk about the emperor's really big bad mistake. 
The emperor was not nearly as good at mental math as he thought he was. So I encourage you guys to break ranks from the emperor. If you want to, bust out a spreadsheet and calculate this rice reward for yourself. I'll give you some of the highlights right here. So after two full rows of the board are filled, and I should pause and, and, and inform those who don't know, it's an 8x8 eight eight board. There are 64 squares on a chessboard, 8x8. Eight eight. So really what we're talking about here is we're doubling the amount of rice 64 times. So after the first two rows are filled, that's two eight-square rows, that's 16 total squares, the inventor would have 65,000 total grains of rice, and that's about three pounds of rice. So we're a quarter of the way through the board, and he has three pounds of rice. Maybe that's a week's worth of meals, not exactly uh, a great reward so far. But we need to pause here, because believe it or not, even though we're only a quarter of the way through the board, we're at a turning point. Because let's just think about this in our heads. How much rice would there be after one additional row is filled? Take three pounds, and then double it eight times. The answer is about 750 pounds or enough rice for a couple of years. After two rows, we had enough rice for a week. After the third row, we have enough rice for a couple of years. The emperor's throne is probably starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable because he's kind of seeing before his eyes how compound interest works. What happens when we fill in one more row, making it four full rows? The inventor of chess would have almost 200,000 pounds of rice. It would take that man, that inventor, a thousand years to eat that much rice on his own. And we're only halfway through the board. After the fifth row, the amount of rice equals half the weight of the Titanic. It's, it's the, if I just said how many pounds it was, it wouldn't really register, right? How many millions of pounds. The point is, it's half the weight of the Titanic. After the sixth row, the rice would weigh more than all the passenger cars on Earth. Right? What does a billion cars weigh? After the seventh row, the rice is equivalent to 10 times the weight of all the stuff on Manhattan Island, including every building. And then after the eighth row, the rice weighs about the same as Lake Erie. For those of you not from the U.S., that's one of our great lakes. It's 115 cubic miles of water. That's a lot of rice. Okay, so this might be the world's first legend involving compound interest. It's exactly why, for example, your younger years are the best time to invest. Starting early allows you to fill up more of your personal chessboard, and it allows you to get further down the chessboard as you age. The early days of investing, they might feel like a slog. Every paycheck contributes a little bit. But by the end of the year, it feels like you've put in $5,000 and, and maybe your investment has only given you $100 back. That free money from, say, a 401k is nice, but you can't retire off of a $100 annual return. But remember, in this scenario, you're, you're just in the first rows of your chessboard. And without those first rows, the last rows wouldn't be nearly as impactful. The calculation for each square in this example depended on the rice from the previous square. Each year of your investing timeline, it'll depend on what you've done in previous years. So there's no better time to start than right now. Of course, your investments aren't going to double every year. If they do, you should immediately send an email to jesse at bestinterest.blog. But they might double in value every 10 years or so. That's a reasonable, and some would even say a conservative benchmark. So let's consider a simple worker who puts 10% of their paycheck, let's say that's $5,000 annually, into an index fund through their 401k. 
After five years, our investor might be questioning their strategy a little bit. They've consistently invested $5,000 each year, but their portfolio only returns roughly $2,000 of growth during year five. Now, investing should make your money work for you, yet our investor, they probably feel like they're doing most of the work. But we need to remember, these are the early rows of the chessboard, and just like we'll witness around row three in that chess example, we're about to hit a turning point. At our investor's 10-year mark, their portfolio grows by $5,000 on its own, essentially matching the $5,000 that the investor contributes that year. It's not too bad of a deal. By year 16, the portfolio grows at about $10,000 per year, doubling their annual $5,000 contribution. By year 24, the portfolio grows at more than $20,000 per year. That's a 4x multiplier on the annual contribution. The portfolio is now working way harder than the investor is. If our investor started at age 22 and retired at age 59, and I use age 59 because that's when they can start to withdraw their 401k without penalty, they'd have 37 years to invest, right? Age 22 to age 59. And after those 37 years, their portfolio would be returning about $55,000 per year. That's more than their entire starting salary at the beginning of this analysis. So will your nest egg outweigh Lake Erie? I have my doubts. But you can use this parable of chess and rice to better understand compound interest, to better understand your investing future. You need to build an investment foundation. You can let your nest egg grow. And hopefully soon you'll find yourself in a winning position. And here's another little parable about compound interest. You might know the name Claude Monet. He's a French artist. And one of the favorite things for Monet, he, he had two things that he painted a lot. You know, he painted the same scene dozens of times in his life. One of them was, I think it's Waterloo Bridge. It's a bridge in London, long story short. He painted the same bridge in London looking out his apartment window many times. But then the other thing he liked to paint was back home in France. It was his favorite pond. And this pond had the lily pads on it. So for the sake of this example, imagine Claude Monet watches lily pads grow on his favorite pond. The pond is a circle for the sake of his example. It's about one mile across. And he notices, because he's a bit math-minded, that the size of the lily pad patch, it doubles in size every day. After 30 days, that's when the pond is completely covered with lily pads. So the question is, on what day is the pond half full of lily pads? Think about it for a second. Maybe you know the answer. The answer is day 29. If it takes 30 days to completely cover, and the lily pads are doubling in size every single day, well, if it's at 100% at day 30, then it must be at 50% at day 29. That's the final answer. Okay, it's a bit of a cheap answer. But the whole idea here is we have compound interest. Doubling every day, that's an example of compound interest. And we need to realize that the first 29 days gets us halfway to the finish line. And then the last day gets us the rest of the way to the finish line. That's the way compound interest works. It's slow, slow, slow and then extremely fast. So to give you a little bit of an example, I kind of went back in time and I estimated the certain size of a lily pad. I looked at the size of the whole pond. I went back starting at day 30 when the pond was completely covered and I went all the way back to day one. Here are some interesting mile points along our timeline. So at day four, that's about when the first lily pad stops growing or finishes growing. At day 10, we have 100 lily pads or about one one millionth of the pond is covered. 
By day 17, we have 10,000 lily pads, which is about a 65-foot diameter patch of lily pads in the middle of the pond. At day 24, we hit 1% total coverage. 1% of the pond is covered at day 24. In other words, it takes three and a half weeks to make 1% progress. And then in the final week, 99% of the progress occurs. Again, slow, 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 and then incredibly fast. That's the way that compound interest works. Okay, our second example today is called average versus actual. Average versus actual. Now, average is okay. Every financial content creator at some point uses average market returns. I used them earlier today in this episode when I was talking about the person investing in their 401k from age 22 to 59. You'll see things like, well, there's maybe a 9 to 12% average annual return from the stock market. You should assume 2 to 4% as an average tax rate. So if you have pre-tax annual inflation-adjusted return, you're somewhere between 5 and 10% per year. Totally understandable why people use average. I use average a lot myself. There's nothing wrong with it, except you have to realize that real life is an average. So one thing I did was I wanted to look at a real investor's timeline. Imagine someone starts investing in, pick a year, 1991. And they dollar cost average, they put the same amount of money into the stock market every month for the next 30 years from 1991 to 2001. Now, they aren't going to get a steady 8% return every single year, right? Their, their returns will be all over the place because they'll be in bull markets, they'll be in bear markets. Sometimes their average return will be way above or the, the return that they've experienced over their time will be way above average. And sometimes the return they've experienced over time will be below average. So yes, it does help to see this in a chart, but I want to point out some highlights from exactly that investor that I just described, someone who started in 1991 and ended in 2021, investing the same amount every single month into the S&P 500, just a simple S&P 500 index fund. So you might know this, that the 90s were a great time to be a stock investor right up until the end of the 90s when the dot-com bubble burst. So if I look at the first eight years of this investor's timeline, they saw 17% annualized growth. Average, we said, might be 7, 8, 9%. Well, this person had 17%. But then we had the dot-com bubble burst. Okay, that hurts their average performance over the timeline. They went through the 2000s, which were a little bit bumpy, and then the great financial crisis hit at the end of the 2000s. So let's go to 2009, specifically March of 2009. That was the, the bottom that was the worst point in the financial crisis. It was March of 2009. At this point, our investor who started in 1991, they'd been investing for 18 years. And throughout those 18 years at that point, they had seen 3.5% annualized growth. Again, average might be 7, 8, or 9. At one point, just a decade earlier, their portfolio was averaging 17%. And now here they are, almost two decades into their investing career, and their average return is 3.5% per year. That must be a terrible, terrible feeling. I think you can agree with me. Now, if they had stayed the course, they would have gone through 
a bull market from the pits of 2009 all the way up through 2022, and they would have finished right around 8% per year for the full 30-year timeline. So it's very interesting because they had some highs, 17% per year for the first eight years, and then eventually they hit some real lows where they looked back on 18 years of investing and only saw 3.5% annualized growth. But if they stayed the course until today, their portfolio would have returned 7 or 8% annualized over the full 30-year period. So this brings us to this great quote from John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. And the quote is, reversion to the mean is the ironclad rule for financial markets. Right? Reversion to the mean, it means that some periods start off really hot, but then they tend to cool off at the end. Other periods of time will start off cold, but then they'll get hot later on. Eventually, after 30 years, you end up with the stock market at least, somewhere between 6, 7, 8% for an inflation-adjusted real return. The longer you wait, the more dependable your average annualized returns are. It's kind of like ripples on a pond, right? The more you wait, the more they decay, and the more predictable the state of the pond becomes. The pond reverts to its mean. Now, I do think it's important for you guys to at least see this final chart in this slide deck, or at least the, the final chart about the topic that I just spoke about, because this chart, it shows the same exact analysis that I just talked about, but it shows it for eight different investing periods, you know, from 1920 to 1950, and then from 1930 to 1960, et cetera, et cetera. And you're going to see reversion to the mean in action. You're going to see some periods starting off pretty poorly after a decade there's basically 0% return. But then by the time we get 30 years out, there's 7 or 8% annualized return. Other periods are going to resemble that period I just went through, the 1991 period, where the first, say, 10 or 15 years sees 15, 20% annualized returns. Those investors must have felt great. Unfortunately, those returns eventually reverted to the mean. By the time they're 30 years into their investing career, they're back at 7 or 8% annualized returns. So it's okay to use 7 or 8% as an average stock return, but just realize that actual returns are nowhere near that stable, and it often takes 20, 30, or 40 years to actually feel like you're getting that average return. Hey guys, just a quick plug. I'm trying to be more intentional with growing the Best Interest Podcast. One thing that really helps potential listeners decide if they want to listen is the show's ratings and reviews. I know you've listened to the show before, you're listening right now, so I'm hoping you could leave a rating and an honest review if you have the time. On Spotify, you can only leave a rating, but if you use Apple Podcasts, you can leave a rating and review. Either works, it's very straightforward, straight from the app that you're listening to. Thank you so much, guys, and thank you for listening to the Best Interest Podcast. Topic number three, the worst market timer. So imagine a, a guy named Jim. Jim wants to invest, but he happens to have the worst intuition on earth. He starts in 1990, he saves $5,000 per year, and he increases his savings rate by $500 a year, right? So $5,000, then the next year $5,500, then the next year $6,000. But he invests at the worst time possible. Imagine he, he puts his money in a savings account. He's never quite sure when to pull the trigger. 
And then he happens to invest all his money at once in August 2000, right before the dot-com bubble bursts. He doesn't sell when the bubble bursts. He just kind of sits in his misery, realizing that he timed the market terribly. He continues to save $5,000 plus every year, but then he just puts it in a savings account again. And he waits again until right before the great financial crisis. He dumps all of his money into the market in October 2007. Terrible timing. The market crashes before him. And then he does it once more in February 2020, right before COVID. So the entire time, he's always saving $5,000, $5,500, $6,000 a year. He's saving money every year. He's just choosing to put it in a savings account, except for right when the market's about to crash, which is when his terrible timing comes to the fore. Now, of course, we don't expect Jim's results to be good. But I think if I just told you that story and you didn't know anything else, you would assume that as Jim sits here today, he must have lost a ton of money. And that's not true. Jim ended up contributing about $411,000, just over $400,000 over 30 years. But as of today, his portfolio is worth $800,000. His average dollar has seen a 4.2% annual growth, and that includes the lost decade of the 2000s. It includes all of his bad timing because the key is Jim didn't sell, right? Yes, Jim invested at the worst possible times. He dumped his money into the stock market right before the dot-com bubble, and that really hurt. He dumped more money in before the great financial crisis, and again, that hurt for a few years. And I will say, you can look at the data, and Jim's portfolio was underwater right up until about 2012. He hadn't made a dime, but those investing dollars that he put in in 1999 and then the investing dollars that he put in in 2007, by the time he got to the mid-20-teens, those investing dollars were making him a profit. And even though he did make his final third investment before COVID, he was still above water. He was still in the black. He had still made a profit. And as he sits here today, he's realized 4.2% annualized growth on his total investment. He's doubled his money over 30 years. Now, if Jim had been dollar cost averaging the whole time, again, that means putting his money into the stock market instead of putting it in a savings account, not really worrying about the highs and the lows of the stock market, just month after month after month saving, he'd have about $1.5 million today or about 8% annualized growth. So the point of the story is you should be dollar cost averaging. You shouldn't be throwing your money in a bank account and then dumping it in all at once. It would especially suck if you happen to have terrible timing like Jim did. But the real important takeaway is not to sell. Not to sell even when things feel bad, not to sell even when maybe you personally feel stupid. If you have a diversified portfolio, which in this case, Jim basically did, right? He was investing in an S&P 500 index fund. It's a little bit concentrated in only stocks, and it's a little bit concentrated in that it's only American stocks and only large companies. But still, he's investing in a broad swath of the American economy. That's relatively diversified. And he doesn't sell. He holds, 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 so that even his old poorly timed investments had enough time to make up for his bad timing and eventually bring him an investment return. Don't sell. Lesson number four, 
is the market a casino? This is one of these tropes that I hear a lot. Some people think that investing in general is like gambling, but especially the stock market. People equate the stock market to gambling a lot, and I, I understand why they say that. On the one hand, we have things like the Robinhood app, which, I mean, the Robinhood app literally looks like a casino, right? Like little sparklies come down from the top of the app when you make a successful trade. We had recent things, whether it's cryptocurrency, meme stocks, that certainly felt like gambling, where someone was maybe 10xing their money in a week. That, that always feels like gambling, you know, options trading, stuff like that. And then, okay, making or losing money, sure, that feels like a casino. Kind of, you know, numbers going up and down for apparently random reasons, that kind of feels like a casino. When someone looks at the stock market only for, for a couple days or for a couple weeks, it, it feels like luck, right? And luck is the essence of gambling. I get it. We all get it. In fact, some of you listening to this just say like, yeah, the market is a casino for all the reasons that Jesse just laid out. But there is one all-important difference. If I play roulette one time, I have a 47% chance to win, to make a profit. If I play roulette 10 times, I have a 41% chance to make a profit. My odds dropped from 47 to 41%. If I play roulette 100 times, I have a 26% chance to walk away with a profit. The more I play roulette, the worse my odds become of walking away with any sort of profit. But with investing, that's exactly the opposite. If I had randomly picked a time to start investing in the U.S. stock market, anytime since 1871, if I had held my investment, my stock investment, for one month, I'd have a 63% chance of making money. If I hold that same investment for a year, I have a 72% chance. For five years, it's an 89% chance. For 10 years, a 97% chance. And for 20 and 30 years, it's a 100% chance. There's never been a 20 or 30 year period in the US stock market where someone could have held their investment over that period and lost money. And again, I'm assuming here an S&P 500 index fund, right? I'm using Robert Schiller's S&P 500 historical data going back to 1871. In a casino, the longer you choose to sit there at the table, the less likely you are to walk away with money. With a stock market, the longer you sit there and hold your investments, the more likely you are to walk away with money. So again, some people treat the stock market like a casino, and they see the way that others are treating the stock market, and they say, yeah, everyone's treating it like a casino. But you don't have to treat it like a casino. You can just sit there, your hands in your pockets, holding your investments, and walk away in 20 or 30 years with a lot more money than you walked in with. I'm going to turn it over to NYU Stern Business School professor Aswath Damodoran, who had a, uh, an excellent little blurb on a recent Morningstar podcast to support this idea. We also asked ChatGPT, we prompted it to come up with a question that would annoy you. Yeah. And without missing a beat, it responded as follows. It said, can you give me a hot stock tip that will make me rich quickly without any research or understanding of the company's fundamentals. And so my question for you is actually, do you get this question more often from Uber drivers or from others in academic and social circles? I think I get it from 95% of investors. I think that they miss the essence of investing. Invest, you don't invest to get rich. You invest to preserve and grow wealth. 
I think the minute you think of investing as a pathway to getting rich, you set yourself up for all kinds of mistakes. You overreach, you overbet, because that's the way you get rich, is you gamble. And I think we need to redefine investing. Investing is about preserving growing wealth, which means if you're a doctor, go back and do your job, earn your income. That's going to be at the heart of your investing. If you're spending most of your time as a doctor looking through the stock pages trying to pick stocks, your wealth is not growing. Their investing can be great, but it doesn't pay off. So I think that it's much more common than, than we accept. Many people, they're traders. They're not investors. They want to trade their way to riches. And they look at success stories. This is selection bias. Now you have YouTube videos of people who got rich in five years by trading. And you use those as role models. It's, it's an extraordinary dangerous pathway. You're on because history suggests that sooner or later you're going to leave that casino with nothing in your pocket. Okay, cool idea number five. Let's talk about luck versus skill. So I recently ran a, a stock picking competition on the blog. It was 100 days long. And I got 100,000 people to participate. You're just going to have to, you're going to have to go along with me right now. 100,000 people were saying invested in my competition over 100 days. Every day, I came to them with an A versus B choice about which stock would do better this day. You know, is stock A or stock B going to perform better on this particular day? It was that easy. They had to vote for one, A or B. And out of 100,000 people, we did end up getting an obvious winner and an obvious loser. The obvious winner, he was right on 71 out of 100 days. So he had 71 wins and 29 losses. Our obvious loser had 30 wins and 70 losses. Now imagine I came to you telling you what I just told you. And I said that starting today, you have to invest in a, a mutual fund or a hedge fund that is being run by either our winner or our loser. Would you have a preference? Now, the logical thing, of course, is to say, yeah, I have a preference. Considering one person got 71 days right and the losing person got 70 of the days wrong, I'm going to go with the winning person. Now, I have to come clean. I've kind of sort of been lying to you, if you couldn't tell. Maybe the 100,000 participants gave it away. This wasn't really a stock picking competition. What it was, was a coin flipping simulation that I wrote in MATLAB, a computer software. And there really were 100,000 simulations of 100 coin flips, which, of course, as you guys know, is just a 50-50 proposition. It's a coin flip. And the best coin flipper got 71 of the coin flips right, and the worst one got 70 of the coin flips wrong. And, of course, we know about coin flipping, that coin flipping isn't repeatable. Someone can win 71 coin flips out of 100 in one simulation, and that same person is not guaranteed to get 71 coin flips right in the next simulation, not even close. So that's when we get into the whole idea of luck versus skill. And, and we'll come back to the stock market in a second, because imagine Jesse, imagine I, won the U.S. coin flipping competition by successfully guessing, I don't know, 28 coin flips in a row, because it takes 28 coin flips to boil down 300 million Americans into one winner. I got 28 coin flips in a row. But the real question is, Am I the favorite to win again next year? Well, of course I'm not, because getting 28 coin flips in a row is pure luck, and luck is not repeatable. That's the highlight here. Luck is not repeatable. But now, imagine, 
I don't know, listener of the podcast, Beckley. Imagine that Beckley wins the American Chess Championship. Again, by successfully winning 28 games in a row, we somehow get every American to participate in this chess tournament, all 300 million of them, and it takes 28 rounds to eliminate everybody except for Beckley. He wins. Is Beckley the favorite to win again next year? I would probably say yes, or he's one of the favorites. And the reason why, of course, is we know that chess is pure skill. Chess is a game where there's no such thing as luck. All the information is available there on the board. It's turn-based. There's just no chance involved. So if Beckley was able to use his skill to win this year's tournament, odds are he's going to be one of the favorites in next year's tournament too. Now let's bring this back to the stock market. Is the stock market a function of skill, a function of luck, or somewhere in between? An MIT study, they wanted to understand how much luck was involved in, in various games and sports and practices. And they, they ran their study by measuring repeatability, just like we talked about with coin flips and chess. Now, coin flipping, of course, they found was 100% luck. Chess, they found was 100% skill. But they also looked at things like NBA basketball. Now, NBA basketball, they found, was mostly skill. Of course, there's some luck, right? Sometimes a, a shot that you think was going in goes out. Sometimes a guy gets injured. That's bad luck. Sometimes the ref makes a call that you didn't think is supposed to go the right way. That's luck. But it's mostly skill. And they found that NBA basketball was about 86% skill. NFL football, they found, was about 68% skill. But mutual fund management, which is another name for stock picking, they found was only 31% skill. In other words, yes, there is some underlying skill to, to picking stocks, but it is mostly luck. There is a, a measurable, a repeatable skill in stock picking, and some people do have it. But there's more random noise, there's more luck than there is skill. So if you had to just pick one, if you had to choose to either invest with an active fund manager or to invest in a passive index fund, you're going to be better off, statistically speaking, investing in that passive index fund. And we're actually going to come back to this topic in a little bit. But first, let's talk about topic number six, which is when someone says, but the market is at an all-time high. It's really hard to look at the stock market. Granted, the stock market isn't at an all-time high right now. When I put these charts together, probably in 2019 or 2020, it was at an all-time high. And it's something I heard a lot. It's one of the things, it's actually one of the first kind of viral articles I, I wrote for The Best Interest. It had to do with readers telling me, you know, Jesse, why are you still investing in the stock market? It's at an all-time high. Of course, the answer is the stock market's at all-time highs a lot. And if you choose to not invest simply because the market's at an all-time high, you're going to be missing out on a lot of investing opportunities in your career. So I have this chart in the presentation that I put together where I, I show a, a real snippet of the stock market over roughly 15 years. And I, I asked the people in the room, I said, when do you want to sell? If I show you this chart, when, when do you want to sell? Do you want to sell when you're up 150% over five years? Because you were at an all-time high. At that point, you were up 150% over five years. But the thing is, if you sold then, you would have missed out on the fact that after eight years, you were up 213%. You had a lot more room to grow if you had just held on. But again, after eight years, we're at an all-time high, so maybe that's the time to sell. But really, if we zoom out even further, after 13 years, your investment was up 500%. And again, 
It's at an all-time high. At all three of these points, your investment would have been at an all-time high. And you could have used that to justify selling at the first point when you're up 150%. But you would have missed out on the next eight years of growth, which got you up 500%, right? That's the way the stock market works. The stock market in general moves up and to the right, especially over long periods of time. Selling at an all-time high or kind of equivalent to that is choosing not to buy because you're at an all-time high. Usually it's the wrong thing to do if you're a long-term investor. Hey guys, Jesse here. Some of you might not know that I send a quick weekly email, usually on Thursdays. It'll take you about two minutes to read with links to new podcast episodes, new blog posts, and the best financial content that I've read over the past week from all over the internet. Without being there, I want to share not only my work with you guys, but just the smartest stuff that I'm reading that I'm learning from on a regular basis. Right now, about 6,500 people get that email every week, and you can sign up completely for free. If you just go to the homepage of the blog, that's bestinterest.blog, one of the first things you'll see is the email sign-up. Totally free, quick weekly email, pretty worthwhile. About 6,500 people like it, and I think you'll like it too. And the last one, number seven, I'm going to get a little bit of flack from this, but I have the data to support it. Number seven is you can beat the market despite what people say. Because what people usually say is nobody can beat the market. And that's just a silly myth. It really is just a silly myth. The market is an average. It's the average of all listed stocks. So imagine someone saying you can't be taller than the average. You can't be smarter than the average. You can't be better than the average. You can't be heavier than the average. You can't have longer hair than the average. It's just silly. Of course you can be taller than average. Lots of people are. So similarly, you can beat the market. You can have better performance than the market. But of course, we do need to talk about some caveats, some really, really important caveats. And at the end of the list of those caveats, we might realize that Trying to beat the market is a bit of a fool's errand. Okay, so what exactly are the caveats? It's really hard to beat the market, and there are a few reasons why. One of the big ones is luck versus skill. We already talked about this one. I promised you guys we'd come back to it. Can you repeatedly beat the market over time? Okay, let's say you beat the market in year one. Was that luck or was that skill? How can you tell? That's, it's, it sounds a little bit philosophical, but it's a really important question. Even if you beat the market over a three-year or a five-year time period, how much of that was luck? How much of that was skill? How repeatable was your performance, honestly? It's a hard question to answer. And then there's a really cool statistical fact about the stock market. It's called skew, S-K-E-W. And we know what skew really means. Skew is like a lean, right? When, when something leans to one side or the other. In this case, what skew represents or what skew refers to is the fact that the stock market is comprised of many, many mediocre losers and a few big winners. The way that you get to a quote-unquote stock market average, the way that the stock market average you know, exists, is that you have many, many losers on one side of the average, and then you have a few big winners that pull the average up and to the right. In fact, if we go back about 30 years, roughly 65 to 70% of stocks underperform their index and only 35% of stocks outperform their index. 
So if you want to beat the market, you have to be skilled enough to identify those 35% of stocks. You have to be skilled enough to identify the minority of stocks. And just the odds are against you. Odds are, if you're looking for a needle in a haystack, if you're looking for a minority, you're going to have a hard time finding it. And that's why most stock pickers, most active managers end up failing. And then we get to fees. Of course, investing fees, it's kind of like starting a golf round with strokes already on your card. It's still possible to shoot under par, but it just got that much harder to do so. Again, it's possible. Some people do it. I've seen it. You can Google it. You can find results that show that it's possible. But you can also Google and find results that say most of the time, stock picking is hard. Beating the market is hard. It's one thing to do it without fees. It's already kind of like the, the odds are stacked against you, again, because of that skew that we talked about. Once you add in fees, fees are like a whole nother layer of skew, making it even harder. And then there's the fact that even if someone does it, even if someone comes to you and they say, I have one year of performance, even after my fees, look at how well I beat the market. You can say, that's great. That's phenomenal. Good for you. But can you prove to me that it's repeatable? Can you prove to me that you used skill to get you there? It's pretty tough to do. And maybe one more that I'd add in, if you're a, a DIY, if you're listening to this at home and you're a DIY active investor, was your time commitment to beat the market actually worthwhile? Because if you're the kind of person who you sit at your computer for two hours a day deciding what stocks to pick and you do that every single workday or every single day that the market's open, you committed 400 hours of your time over the course of a work year to trying to find stocks. Was that 400-hour commitment worthwhile? You know, did you actually profit? Did you actually beat the market enough to justify your 400-hour time commitment? Kind of hard to do, but worth doing. So these complications, they all point in the same direction. And namely, they ask this question, is beating the market worth attempting? We know it's possible. Mathematically, it has to be. But is it worth attempting? For the average person, the answer is no. A quick review of these seven cool, fantastic facts to improve your investor know-how, your investor psychology. The first one, remember that story about rice. Remember the story about the lily pads. Remember the power of compound interest. The second one, average stock market returns are far different than actual returns. It's okay to use the average returns when you're plugging in a little bit of analysis but remember that the actual returns are probably going to be far more painful at some point during your investing career. Number three, remember our story about the worst market timer. Yes, he had terrible timing, but even though it felt like he should have been losing money over his career, because he never sold, he actually came out with a pretty reasonable profit. Number four, is the stock market like a casino? Well, it might look that way at least in the short term, but remember, there's that fundamental difference. The longer you play in a casino, the worse you'll be. But the longer you play and the longer you hold your investments in the stock market, the better you'll be. Number five, luck versus skill. Remember, coin flips, all luck. Chess, all skill. Stock investing, somewhere in between, but more on the luck spectrum than the skill spectrum. Number six, but the market's at all-time highs. Yeah, that might be true but the market is usually at all-time highs. And if you use that fact of the market being at an all-time high to either sell or to prevent yourself from buying more investments, odds are you're doing it wrong. 
And finally, number seven, yes, you can beat the market, but there are many complications standing in your way, and those complications, they all point in the same direction. And they ask you, is beating the market even worth attempting? Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.